Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. On this show, we share the stories of how different actors up and down the value chain are working to take climate action through food. It's all about inspiring collaboration, discussing the good that is happening, the challenges we share, and realizing a common vision for our future food system. I'm your host, Annalisa Winther, and let's jump in. My guest today is Bor Yervan. He's a senior partner at Mimir, which is a leading tourism development consultancy in Norway. He was deeply involved in developing the new Norwegian tourism strategy for 2030, which was delivered to the government from the tourism industry in April 2021. So why does Norway need a new national tourism strategy? Tourism has major ripple effects and value creation opportunities in other industries. It is linked to regional development, job creation, the preservation of resources, carbon emissions, culture, politics, and of course, my favorite topic, food. I first heard about Bohr's work at the conference Nordic Food in Tourism. I was fascinated by the conversation and the role that food can play. In this conversation, we discuss what sustainable tourism is and how the industry must adopt a win-win perspective that adds positive value for visitors, local communities, our planet, and big industry. We particularly discuss the role that food plays, what the Nordics have going for them, how Norway is looking at becoming a destination for seafood lovers, emerging collaborations, and the impact on local regions. This is also a reminder that if you're not currently a subscriber of the Nordic Food Tech Podcast newsletter, you can do that on nordicfoodtechpodcast.substack.com. There you will find the links for the national strategy, along with some other reports that we refer to in this episode. You'll also be able to get access to the episode transcript if you really want to dive into the facts and the figures, along with my notes on this conversation and how it relates to other conversations we've had on the podcast. Hello, Bor. Welcome to the Nordic Food Tech Podcast. I think we should start today's conversation about you and just giving a little bit of a background into who you are and how you got into tourism. I, I got into tourism through my education 40 years ago, 25 years ago. I started together with a former colleague, uh, a consultancy, and I've been working with that consultancy called Mimi. Yeah, it's eight uh, consultants, and we were and we have been around working with the development of tourism in Norway for the last 25 years. So you can say that the consultancy is kind of focused around what can we do to develop tourism as a business, create more working places, develop possibilities for, for living all over Norway. But also uh, we do regional planning together with regional authorities. We do some marketing studies. We also do development of our region's identity as a tourist region. And you were part of writing Norway's national tourism strategy with a focus on 2030. Can you just talk a little bit about the inception of that report, why it came about that you should make a tourism strategy, and then what the process was for writing it? Yeah, I think it was both uh, a need for having some kind of joint direction or for developing tourism as, a, as, an, as an industry in Norway. Uh, we saw all these 
changes coming with the with the need for a more sustainable development and we also saw that tourism kind of developed quite fast in Norway also up, up until 2019 when, when the COVID-19 did hit us all so there was a need for you know stepping a little bit back and think a little bit more uh, systematically about how how should we develop develop this industry in, in a way that both gave what we call a win-win approach a win for the, the industry itself but also a win for local societies and also a win for for the the guests so we tried to bring um, all these perspectives together uh, and also in, integrate the the sustainability goals from the uh, United Nations. And then we saw that also in order to bring uh, tourism on a higher up on the political agenda and to see tourism as a potential for Norway, you know, oil, the oil business has been very, very important for many years in Norway now. It's going down. So we need to, you know, identify other industries with um, growth potential and, and, and and tourism wanted to be part of that national political discussion. And then we need, we found out we need a national strategy from the tourism sector to the politicians, to the government in order to emphasize what will be of importance and how can we be a business that also develops along with political uh, perspectives on, on, on the future. Mm. And as you just were talking about, tourism is just, it's so big in terms of what it can be and the stakeholders it involves. So you started writing this report before the pandemic started, then the pandemic hit. And I just want to connect a little bit how the conversation changed in that process and the differences you saw, but also how you brought all these different kinds of diverse people together to really figure out what could tourism be in Norway. Yeah, like you said, that uh, we, we were just about to start when the pandemic uh, hit us all. And then we found out we have to organize this. We wanted to have a way of getting all the voices from all the stakeholders, from, from the business uh, businesses themselves, from regional development or, uh, agencies, from uh, also from the surrounding sectors. And then we, we developed a concept that we call roundtable discussions. So we gathered about 10 people each time to online discussions. And then we brought up some, some core issues that we needed to find answers uh, for. And then, we, and then we had about 400 people involved in this process all in all. Wow. But everything happened during the pandemic. So we, we had to do this. And that's... And when it comes to my role and my company's role, it was that we have, like I said, been around for 25 years. So we have a lot of networks around in Norway. So it was easier for us, in a way, to, to facilitate these roundtable discussions because we know most of the regions, we know many of the, of the operators, the, the businesses, we know a lot of the tourism all over Norway. And then it's easier to to get uh, a meaningful discussion with, with everybody. Mm. And as someone that's been working in this field for almost three decades, how have you seen the conversation around tourism in Norway and the Nordics change? Uh, Norway has been kind of 
promoted as a tourism destination as is. It hasn't been developed very much as an industry. But that has changed uh, now because now we are more focused on how can we make tourism a future industry for Norway that with importance for the economy. Also, when it comes to uh, foreign tourists, uh, like we said, we, we need new industries for the future. And then again, we have been kind of focusing on our nature. And Norway used to say that the slogan internationally internationally has been uh, powered by nature. And then we see that in order to become a more kind of complete holiday destination, we need to focus on more things. We need to bring uh, our culture, our history and our food uh, on the table. And, and we know that in an international perspective, Italy is very much liked as a tourism country because they say that we have tourism for all senses. You can taste Italy, you can you can feel Italy, you can smell Italy, you, the atmosphere, the culture, the nature, the people, everything is kind of integrated in their tourism. While we had powered by nature, come here, see our beautiful mountains, the fjords, the northern lights, everything. And then we haven't had this structured discussion about how do we make Norway a more complete and interesting uh, tourism country for wider. Uh, for a wider audience internationally. It is so interesting because when you think of popular tourist destinations, it's that combination of culture, history, food, nature, art, architecture. It's very rich and it does touch all the senses. But there's also this difference, like you said, it's powered by nature. There's a lot of focus on come and see what's in the country, but it's not necessarily come and see what's inside our home or let us offer you an experience and really create an industry around it. It feels quite underdeveloped in the Nordics and that when you compare it compared to some other nations. So what are some of the things when you looked at this report and if you hold Italy as kind of like the ideal of what you could do, what were some of the recommendations that came out of what we should be thinking about? Uh, Innovation Norway has this tracker that tracks Norway's positioning in the international tourism market. And it's we have the green light. Norway is a safe country. It's spectacular nature. It's uh, it's for explorers. And then these brand trackers also shows that but people have no expectations about food. They don't know much about our culture and our history. And they we are not seen as a very friendly country. Very few people are invited home into somebody's home. The recommendation is that okay, if we are to develop Norway on the international scene as a tourism destination, we need to focus on the red lights, not the green ones. They are okay. And then if we make move some of these issues from the red position to a green position, we'll obviously strengthen our position as a tourism destination. So that's why food and culture uh, is uh, put on the agenda as uh, some of the areas, focus areas for future development. And when we stimulate development, rural development, regional development, also with public money, they will be set up for projects that will develop uh, these parts of tourism. And there is another aspect to this, and that's that food and cultural experiences are not that season-dependent. 
it's also a nice thing to have a nice meal under the northern light sky or when it's storming outside and you have a nice place inside and you can have a nice meal experience so you don't have that dependency on the seasons and that's also a change challenge when you expose your country as as a place where you should go to to watch the nature it's also a limitation for when people find it attractive to go there so you have this huge tourism sector in the summer and almost nothing in the, and that's a problem also for investors for creating year-round working places and, and use the industry as a development kind of tool for, for rural areas. So in that yeah. case also, cultural and, and food tourism is interesting. Just to talk a bit more about the business opportunity and growth opportunity, I read that one-third of all expenditures during tourism tends to go towards food and drink. So when people travel, they have to eat. And then there's a question of what is the experience and the storytelling and the culture that goes into it. But it's quite a bit of money that's spent there. And then there was a part of the work that you did where it said that one third of all business overnight stays in Norway were made by international business visitors, and they consume something like 33 million meals. And if you think of it, again, in the storytelling perspective, that's 33 million opportunities to export Norwegian food, Norwegian culture, deliver a unique experience, and turn it into something more than just a utility of man got to eat, you know, woman got to eat. Yeah, one of the, the, the chefs that we involved in this national strategy process, he said that these guests, they will eat these 33 million meals in Norway, whether you give them good food or bad food. So it's not an option. You, you should give them good food because they have to eat, like you say. That's one of the things that we have been discussing as well. And then also uh, we see that because Norwegians are not very fond of inviting strangers to their home and, and, and give them a meal in their house, we also see that the meals, if you turn them into meal experiences and add storytelling. It's also and because meal and food provides context. It tells something about who you are, what kind of place this is. So by bringing uh, the discussion into not only food, but also meal experiences, it gives this opportunity to use also meals at restaurants or outdoor meals, whatever. It's an opportunity for providing context and telling stories and, and that's something that we have been discussing a lot lately how can we uh, encourage also the food business and, and also the, the producers of uh, seafood and agricultural producers in order to be more involved in take bring it a step further talk about meal experience not just local food or or, or, or how we produce it and how can you do that what are you recommending to them uh, we see uh, in Norway that uh, the menus that the restaurants have, that the chefs, the people that owns the, the, the food businesses, they need to, you know, see this opportunity. So we are working on it from a top-down perspective, where we are together with Visit Norway talking about how can we send more food lovers, more foodies, more bloggers, uh, those kind of people around in Norway to the, to the good places so they can kind of be an eye-opener eye for when they tell stories about this. On the other hand, we need to 
to teach the chefs the, the, the possibilities within Norwegian food, Norwegian ingredients, Norwegian food history, traditions, and also we have a big uh, fish farming industry in Norway. We need to be more clever on how we present also the kind of modern food that we produce in Norway and make that kind of food also into the meal experience. It is interesting because I saw data as well that said there's a growing number of people traveling for gastronomy. And that doesn't just mean gourmet Michelin experiences. That's a very, very wide variety of activities. But there are a lot of people interested in going out foraging or going to visit a farm or seeing how the Nordics are doing something different than maybe they're where they're from. Um, same with going to different kind of food and drink festivals. So Whereas I think tourism has largely been centered around adventure, especially in a country with Norway that has mainly been offering the outdoors and life outside, free loves do, as I think you call it. It's interesting to see a shift in terms of what people even want to buy and what incentivizes them to come. And you're totally right that that can be done all four seasons. It's not limited on a certain time of year. Yeah. And also we have discussed this with the, the nature-oriented activity providers that said, yeah, Sometimes you, you, you forget about the food. You, you bring people to very, very nice places in the nature, but you just give them some baguettes or a wrap or something that you have bought in a cafe on the way instead of using that opportunity also to broaden the experience also for nature lover that you bring in local food, you talk about the food. Maybe you could see a fish farm or, uh, or a sheep farm or whatever from the place, wild berries from the places that bring people and bring that, uh, that, that taste into also the nature-based experience. Yeah. I, I think it's also that connection between nature and food is so important, right? Like they're very, very interconnected. And it's been fascinating to me as we've watched the rise of Nordic food and the fact that we have so many Michelin stars and like you know, we're, we're really building up this reputation as being super innovative around food, but that's all kind of new, you know, it's, it's within the last decade or so that that happened. And I'm going to be bluntly honest and be like, do I think our kitchen historically has been as delicious and exciting as Italy? Maybe not. Like there's, there's also just something regarding the, um, like the catch up and the understanding of really being proud of our food heritage, but also innovating that tradition and framing it in a new way. And the other point I want to add to this is that I think there's a lot we can do there to better understand like what are our foods and be proud of them. But I also see more and more startups that are developing new food products, creating experiences like you're talking about, because they find that it's the best form of marketing to have someone come to the place to see how it's made, to have that very hands-on experience is a powerful tool. So it is there and I think it is changing, but it feels like there's room to grow. Yeah. And also, if you look at Norway or the Nordic countries from the outside, it, it, at least in Norway, it's, it's a lim some limitations because we are far north to what we can produce or agricultural products in Norway. And there's been a lot of import of food and import and makes it necessary to transport and transportation is also a sustainability issue so the more local food uh, short travel food you can bring in it's also a good sustainability issue to increase the number of uh, meals that you can produce from local foods we see that the locals often 
they appreciate that the tourism industry is also taking their local food, their local traditions, and present them to tourists. It's something about respect. It's something about yeah, show what what this is how we live. This is what we eat. This is us. Instead of having more generic uh, food, uh, McDonald's to say. I mean, preserving heritage is so important, and at the same time. It's funny to me that we talk so much also on this podcast around how can we eat more sustainably, right? How can we increase our local food production? And there's some kind of irony in the fact that people coming from abroad to your country who want to eat your local foods might be more of a push than just the local people deciding to eat like what's around them and what's there. But I, I you know, anything that helps helps. And that's interesting in terms of how we can further develop our relationship to nature and food and then show it off, you know, be proud of it and really understand what they're, what is there. Yeah, because when we know that uh, from, from surveys that when people travel, they are more oriented to try new things, uh, experience other kinds of, other kind of food, and, and also very often bring back stories about very special meals that they've had in uh, other countries. But we saw during the pandemic when Norwegians have been traveling a lot abroad for the last years and almost have forgotten their own kitchen or their own uh, local food. So when people started to, to move around and have their holidays domestically the last two years, they kind of re, rediscovered yeah, their own country and a lot of local food. And we see that Trøndelag, the, the, the region in mid-Norway region, they have been working with local food for a lot of uh, years and they were kind of the winner not the areas with the most fancy fjords or, or, or nature. They were the winners when, when Norwegians were asked about what were they, their best experiences in Norway during the pandemic was to discover a region with a lot of local food. Mm. What is it that they discovered? What are some of the great food experiences there? Trøndelag has it's a seafood region. It has a coastline, but also very important agricultural region, and it also has some uh, terroir. All the land is all volcanic kind of thing that you have in the, like you have where you grow special kind of wine or whatever. So this kind of it gives a mm-hmm. good flavor uh, of everything that they grow in this region. It gets very tasty. So they have, the, and they have, uh, of course, also two, three new Michelin restaurants now. It's they have been clever at telling about all all the local production that's going on there, and and made people curious. So they and they have this passion. They have this passion for their own local food. You don't find that everywhere in Norway, and it comes with what we have talked about with good meal experiences, and then people start to talk about this. There is something in this region that you should, you know, try out. You have to go experience it for yourself. Yeah. And Norway is a coastal country, so there is a ton of seafood. And much of this has historically been exported. But I know that you're also looking into what can we do to develop our understanding of what's in the oceans, but then also translate that onto the plates. So can you talk a little bit about this idea of turning Norway into a seafood mecca and a foodie destination? Yeah, it comes with this national strategy and it also comes with the need that the seafood industry sees that they need to, to also develop more interest 
for for the kind of seafood that they, uh, especially the salmon, but also whitefish, they see that we need they need to get the, the Norwegian population to eat more fish, and this is also kind of local food, and and. Uh, with all the discussions that we have around being able to produce the food you need in, in each country. This also has been kind of part of the agenda when Nor- Norway has discussed whether we are... If you're self-sufficient or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we, we have kind of forgotten that we have, are producing so much seafood because it's sent to, to other countries. Like we have done with the stockfish for a thousand years. We have sent all the stockfish to Italy and to Portugal and... And, and they have made bacalao and Italians have about 100 dishes made from stockfish. But we don't nearly use it. It's, it's, no, it's almost not used at all in Norwegian households. So it's something about a shift in mindset that we need to be more aware of that we are producing a lot of seafood in Norway and see how can we develop meals, develop an interest for trying out new kinds of seafood, but also make more use of the seafood. And that's, so we both want Norwegians to uh, eat more seafood, but we also want to introduce uh, seafood as a bigger part of tourism experience in Norway. So that's, we had an event now where the tourism industry and players from the tourism industry met important people from the seafood industry to see whether we could do something together also when it comes to providing context because you can see the fishery, you can see fish being taken out of the sea, you can see the the fishing boats and then we have all the opportunity to both tell our story. That's why people live along the Norwegian and traditionally have lived along the Norwegian coast. It's because of the fishery. So, yeah, we have the seafood. Yes, we have the ability to give tourists more good meals. And yes, again, there is this opportunity to provide context and tell stories around this that also can explain to foreigners why we live there. How, how do we create values in as far as north as we do? Yeah. What was the response of getting the chefs the industrial players together who are, you know, catching the fish, exporting the fish, maybe also some of the smaller scale fishermen. But what was the response of getting these different actors together in the same room? Were they into the idea? Were they like, hmm. what was the reception? Yeah, the reception is good. Uh, but uh, but everybody agrees upon that. It needs to be coordinated also on a national level when it comes to marketing and, and market seafood more together with the tourism experiences. And also, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, we need also to learn the chefs, the, the restaurants, to see the potential in using Norwegian seafood. We also need to increase the, the, the interest of uh, trying out uh, seafood. Uh, everybody agrees, but everybody also sees that it, it won't happen by itself. It needs to be organized. It needs to be structured. It needs to be a collaboration that we have a goal uh, that we, we, we want to do this. And we also need to have resources, the top-down and bottom-up approach. Yeah. There is one more thing in that. One, some of the most spectacular and interesting places to go to visit as a tourist 
in Norway. It's also the places where we have the fish farming industry and also the fisheries. And they also want people to, to stay, to live there. They want to have uh, young people settle. Uh, so it's also we also discuss this perspective of local development and local pride and how we can also involve the locals into seeing this potential as if we collaborate better between local authorities, fish fisheries, the seafood industry and tourism, we, maybe we can develop more flourishing uh, local communities together as well. And it brings me into a topic I want to make sure we we cover, which is this idea of sustainable tourism. Because when I hear the term, there's a, there's some like intrinsic irony in it because tourism is about consumption. You have to travel somewhere. You have to consume things. It's all about consuming another person's culture. So let's start with what does sustainable tourism mean? And then we can talk a little bit about the context of how you're thinking of developing it in that win-win-win way. One perspective is that, yes, all tourism has emissions. And we need to bring the emissions down. And, and Norway is also uh, part of the Paris Agreement. So we say that, okay, if we are to accept that we are tourists bring different levels of carbon or emissions, uh, we need to be sure that if we accept that we will have international tourists, we want to have a value creation in the other hand that we see that, yes, that there are some emissions attached to bringing them in, but let's make sure that they will support the other sustainability goals by creating year-round workplaces, decent work, help us develop uh, vibrant uh, local societies, uh, help us bring in an economy that can help us uh, preserve nature and the other things. But So there is kind of a, we, we have a, a weight that where we balance the, the emissions on, on one side and what we get out of, of these uh, groups of tourists or these markets. So the idea is to lower the emissions from Norwegian tourism by 10% every year. By We have a kind of a climate calculator that we can say that the longer you stay, the more you buy of local, like we have talked about, local food, local things, it's better for the sustainability perspective. Uh, cruise industry has a huge problem with this because it's not it's not the local pollution or what happened when the ships arrive, but it's the long distance they travel to get there with big ships, and they need to change what kind of fuel they use or what kind of engines they have in order to bring their emissions down. So we are trying to say that we don't fix this. At a, it's a big challenge, but we have to start somewhere. So this climate calculator is a way of, you know, being able to to have a wide discussion about what kind of tourism helps us become more sustainable and what does not. So it's about lowering the emissions of the transportation, but also encouraging slower travel that's very focused on buying from yeah. regional providers. A local value yeah. But the other thing you touched upon a little bit that we didn't get to dig into yet is this idea that in many destinations, Iceland's a great example, experienced explosive growth and almost over-tourism where they became very hot. And then suddenly you saw everyone flocking there. And it, it almost, it can get to a point where it's too much, where it drains on the local community, it drains on the resources, or it starts to erode the culture. You know, the that 
I like the idea of the balance you talked about and how you kind of maintain it where you want to let people in, but you also want to make sure that you can do it in a sustainable way. So how does that fit into this narrative of making sure that it doesn't get too big than we can handle, that it starts to become unsustainable? Yeah, it's in the national strategy, we call this managing capacity. We need to have the, the laws and the rules and the regulation that gives us the opportunity to uh, develop tourism in a way that uh, also fits with what locals want. And, and also, uh, if you turn some very sensitive areas for nature experiences, into national parks, for instance, then you can control them in a better way because then you can kind of implement a, a visitor management that people have to accept. But we also have some funding now for what we call the national hikes, national trails to strengthen these areas or, or hikes that get a lot of traffic. But um, in all countries in the future, we need to have the capacity to manage the development of tourism. The OECD said by the beginning when, when, when COVID-19 kind of stopped and gave us a timeout about tourism development, they said that tourism in the future cannot happen so unmanaged and unplanned as it did until 2019. And they also said that tourism will not be able to to get the needed acceptance to tourism as an industry if it don't leave more positive effects back in the local, local societies, local communities. And that's something that we have discussed also. For instance, this use of uh, local food uh, value, local identity, local specialities, local traditions comes also with this perspective of that we need to develop a tourism that the locals want and want to be part of, uh, not to resist or fight against, because then the future of tourism will have big problems. How do you even approach that? Yeah, it's, uh, we, need to, we need to accept that tourism needs to be regulated. You need to look at being a tourist or a traveler. Is, uh, there is a host here. There is a host community that kind of invites you. It's not the right you have as a human to go everywhere and do whatever you want without asking mm. anybody. So, so it needs to be this balance between the, the host communities and, and the travelers wanting to go there, that they have to be more conscious about each other and respect each other. I think that's a general challenge for international tourism. Totally. I mean, it, the consent piece is huge and you're totally right that you're a guest. So even things, if I just bring it to food. You know, there's a lot of people who travel and think that they're going to be able to eat exactly what they get at home. And in another country, they may not have it. Same can go with dietary restrictions. It's You can't travel with the expectation that you can have everything as you're used to. That's part of the beauty of being exposed to another culture is that it challenges you sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes I, I, you can see examples all over the world, some of the top restaurants at the gondolas in Switzerland, they have a Chinese restaurant at the Alps. So for somebody said that, yeah, but we like to eat the food we have at home. So if we have a lot of Chinese guests there and they want this food, instead of saying, if you want to come here, this is the way we do it. And if you don't like it, please go somewhere else. 
in one of the reports you sent me that I was reading preparing for this interview, it also talked about that aspect that, um, you know, like I've certainly traveled and been able to eat like a hamburger in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, they definitely did not always <laughs> eat hamburgers here, but there's this idea of offering people comfort food because you can also be fatigued of eating new things all the time. And then you crave something from home. So in order to make the destination more attractive, there is this balance of also offering things that people are familiar with. I don't know if I have a super strong opinion on it, but I get where it's coming from too, from the marketing perspective of attracting someone somewhere and um, the infrastructure needed to enable that. But I think it's, it's more about being conscious about this thing. Why, why do we do this? Do we perceive that people just want pizza and hamburgers or have we tried to give them local food? Have you tried to expose them to it? So it's also about, what what's the default option? Is that local food or generic food? Yeah, it's a really good point. And the other thing you said that just totally stuck out to me around the kind of consent thing is, I, as I was listening to you speak, I was trying to think of any instance I've ever heard of where a community could say no, and this is too much, and we want to stop when it comes to tourism and letting people in. Because sometimes I feel like the ball gets rolling, and then it's just so hard to stop it. Like it's then it's there and it's going and it's got so much momentum that to say no and to really have that option is like, it feels kind of radical to me. Yeah, but if you look at Venice, for instance, they do this now. They The, the, the resistance in the population were so big that the politicians realized that they had to do something radical. So they are kind of reshaping. In Norway, it's important to take in consideration that we have a few spots in Norway where you have two or three cruise ships come arriving at the same time and you have a local population of 200 people and you'll have 5,000 guests in that local community. It's, it's also about balancing things. So it's a discussion now whether, whether there should be a way of regulating tourism that takes this balance more into consideration. Also in Norway, we have few regulations that says or, or this area is full now you are not allowed to come in there so it's difficult because in Norway also you have or and also some of the other Scandinavian countries you have this freedom to roam you're allowed to go on another man's land so it's very difficult even though it's private ground you cannot you mm. cannot stop people from going there yeah are there any examples of how that conversation and regulations are coming into play with Venice, for example, that just can help to bring this to life a little bit more? Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about this. And you have these new terms coming up, uh, responsible tourism, mm-hmm. that everybody should be responsible, also the tour operators, the guests, the industry. And you have the regenerative tourism, where you have this perspective of saying that tourism should also bring something, be net positive to the local societies, but should leave something, a positive value, not just come in and make use of local resources. And so I think that, and also we have for ours, the right number of tourists on the right places at the right time in, in the, and the right amount of people coming. We also have had some projects in Norway with, with extended visitor management where, where locals and, and the industry and some 
also uh, done some surveys on yes in order to find better solution that says that yes, the problem is not the number of tourists. The problem is the way we manage and 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 uh, and kind of spread the, the the tourism out. And that again brings us back to this year-round tourism. As I lived in Lofoten, the Lofoten Islands, for uh, some years ago. A period of time, it was kind of a vacation. And why did I choose March? Not the summer to go there because March is a very, very nice period to go to stay in Lofoten. And people from the south of Norway who don't are, who are not too familiar with that region say, Why did you want to go there in March? And I said, March is the finest month of the year. So it's also something about, you know, making people aware of that maybe you should go there at a, another time of year and maybe then again be more conscious about. The world's most famous seasonal fishery, the cod fishery in Lofoten, takes place in March. It's an experience in itself. Go there when that happens, yeah. not in the summer when everybody else is there. You're right. It's just a matter of knowledge and probably also having the right clothes. I think one of the things I always hold with me from living in the Nordics is there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. So there's no excuses. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, but that's the same. I saw a presentation of some of the businesses at Vancouver Island in in Canada. They said the same. And they had one of the businesses, at least they said so, they have kind of an outfit. Because sometimes in the the northern areas, you and you'll have that in Canada as well, the weather can change very fast. So you need maybe... you didn't think about rain gear or warm weather or warm clothing or and they will support you with that just so you don't get stuck in the hotel room when the weather changes but in order to get out there so no oh, that's smart i do want to just briefly touch upon price and that didn't come up yet but the nordics are known for being pretty expensive so does that factor into this conversation at all in terms of helping tourism stopping tourism what about prices yeah, it's <laughs> pricing. Uh, prices are a difficult issue within tourism because they. We have said that the strategy and the overall strategy for Norway is high yield, low impact kind of tourism. Norway is an expensive country, and we also have a level of wages and social security that comes along with it. And then we need to be able to have a tourism industry that can produce what the tourists want and have it and and be profitable enough to pay people decent wages. You know, it's a big world out there. There's a lot of potential markets. So the, the main approach for Norway is to find the right kind of tourist that will come to Norway with enough money to pay pay the prices we need to have in order to and if there is a problem, I think that Tourism is facing that all over now that if you don't pay people decent wages, they don't want to work in that industry because also you have to work late at night, you have to work in holidays, everything that comes with it. So in order to raise the interest also in the younger population to be part of this industry, we need to show that it's developing in a way that it, that is profitable enough. I mean, I, I really just find today's conversation so fascinating because it touches upon so many things you maybe don't first think about when you think about vacation or going on vacation, like 
What is it like to visit? What does it mean to visit another culture? And how much does that culture need to change to receive the visitors or not? Or food and food heritage and the use of natural resources, the infrastructure, like there's a lot, lot, a lot there. And I know that we spoke a lot about Norway today, but I actually found out about you and the work you've been doing through a conference that happened, which was called Nordic Food and Tourism. So I do just want to zone, zoom out and give a little bit of airtime to the overall conversation that's happening in the Nordics. And if there's anything you can just share around what that was and the thinking from a regional perspective. I think that the, uh, the Nordic countries are kind of facing the, the same challenge when it comes to the international markets, that there is a limited knowledge about uh, Nordic food uh, in other countries. It, we are not seen as uh, countries for food lovers. Which I also have to say in the report, they asked people what they thought Nordic food was. And the most popular answer was Ikea Swedish meatballs. So I'm also like, Ikea, yeah. <laughs> you have a branding opportunity. <laughs> like That's what people think of when they, even, even despite everything we've done, it's still those meatballs that people know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you have IKEA all over the world, and the, and also and and uh, and they also found that uh, people in the Nordic countries are not very either curious or fond of each other's food. Yeah, but the Danes they have lower expectations for on the food when they come to to Norway, and and we also. Norwegian think that Swedes they only eat these meatballs and surströmming uh, the herring. So we, we have these cliches around our, our, our in between ourselves and and people from Norway say yeah, we, if you go to Iceland you you need to uh, eat this fermented uh, shark fin or whatever. So so we have in a way it's, it's something strange around that. But but to be serious uh, with. It's a challenge for, for the Nordic countries. Some of the things that we have been discussing about bringing food to become a bigger part of the tourism experience, it's the same issue for Iceland, for Finland, yeah. for, for um, Sweden and Denmark as well. Uh, you saw in the report also that what we are known for is this, what the, the Swedish called fika, or we like having waffles and and pastry and uh, things like that. It's not kind of a main dish that we are uh, famous for in the Nordics. It was an interesting experience for everybody to, to in this project to learn that uh, people outside uh, the Nordics were, yeah, they had difficulties in, in talking about a speciality from the Nordics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> I I just think it's funny. Like I I'm when I heard about this, I just went, "There's so much here. There's so much we can do." But one of the things I heard was that we now have so many talented chefs from all over the world that have moved to the Nordics. That there's a lot that still needs to happen around the diversity of options we have, and even world cuisines that could be offered by international people coming in and starting restaurants. But that too, these super talented people are kind of getting poached by other countries who are saying, we'll give you lots of money if you come here, set up shop here, you know, be part of building out our food ecosystem here. So I'll be interesting to follow the dynamic if we actually have a hard time keeping all the talent we've cultivated with 
you know, and that's been trickling down into starting lots of other initiatives or what's going to happen. But it feels like we need to make a move in this space. And it's kind of like our time is now to do something. So that's also why I really wanted to have you on to like get the conversation going and have people wake up to the fact that food is such an opportunity and we can be doing so much more to connect with nature, to introduce it to others, to eat more locally, you know, like there's a lot there. Yeah, because that that was kind of the the recommendation in this Nordic project was that one thing that we have in common is the kind of a, the short distance from the nature and where and and where things grow and are to to have it on the plate. You can visit farms and you can see how we can use you know wild berries things from the nature and and have this short distance from from being societies where you always are kind of in the nature. There are few cities where you kind of lose the feeling of being close to nature in the in the Nordic. That means that there is this relation between uh, nature and agriculture and the resources and where the food comes from and the possibility to create more meal experiences and more meals out of it. So they, the recommendation for all these Nordic countries was that you know, this is something that people don't get if you are at a restaurant in a big city or a metropole or a lot of international tourism happens in places where you don't have this close relation between the resources, the nature and, and the food experience. And that could be attached to different kind of these dishes, new cuisine, new Nordic food, whatever. It has the same opportunity to, to be developed from this concept of close to nature. Yeah. I also think there's just such an opportunity for us to surprise people. I was talking with um, Slow Food Nordic the other day, and there is this big idea around innovating tradition. So preserving heritage while at the same time showing what we can do and how we've adapted that to today's day and age and become this gastronomic hub. But I think it's incredibly exciting to surprise people and show them that even in these harsh environments where you don't think a lot of things grow or maybe weird things grow because you're not used to eating them, we eat them and we find a cool way to do it and it make, we make it taste good. And at the same time, just thinking about the ocean, there is such a major opportunity there. I learned that we only eat 3% of what's available to us in the ocean. It is a huge undertapped resource and it's 10 years behind agriculture, traditional, like on land conventional agriculture in terms of development. So when we start waking up to this and realizing what's actually at our fingertips and how we use it and doing it in a mindful way, I think we open up many doors for what the future can look like and what's possible. Yeah, we had a presentation of the possibilities within seaweed in, in along the Norwegian coast as well at, in this event that we talked about. And they said there are so many opportunities. And there, there is a national cluster coming up in Norvena that works with seaweed and, and, uh, and the development. Mm, that's cool. So I'd love to ask you the last four questions now. The first one is, what is your vision for the future of food in 10 to 15 years? Uh, I think that uh, we need to be much more conscious about everything that's eatable around us, both in the nature and, and in, like you said, in the sea. And I want to see more and a lot of innovation within creating food for the future because we need to find 
much more sustainable ways of producing what the world needs to eat in the future. And I think it's a lot of hidden secrets around us that we don't see. Mm, yeah. What do you think we're missing to get there? It's like uh, we have been living in a time with continuous growth for everything. Everything used to be faster, smarter, better. And now I think that we need to, sh- to shift also when because of the need for being more sustainable in the future, that we need, we need this uh, threat from the climate change in order to start looking for new ways of doing things and also finding new ways of producing food, I think. So I think that this, this shift will come with the climate crisis. And when it comes to all of this work that you're doing, what kind of collaborations or help are you looking for that would move this forward? Trondheim is also uh, it's it's uh, having a, a nice a special food scene now. They are a regional gastronomy this year, but they also are the the techno the capital of technology in Norway. And they say that there is so many things that we should discuss with all these bright heads within the technology sector. But we have never challenged them to help us to find new ways of preserving, developing food, smells, taste, conserving. So they said that maybe we should, we, there are probably a lot of things that we could do together with these other industries, technology. For mm. mm-hmm. That's cool. And if someone wanted to hear about this or get in touch with you about it, how can they reach out? What's the best way to contact you? Uh, write me an email. <laughs> I can share your email if you want me to. I, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> well, maybe the best final question to end on is, why should come one visit Norway? And what should they eat? I think that still Norway is uh, it's a way that you, it's a country that are not very tur- touristic. It's uh, it's still as is. It's, uh, you, you will meet Norwegians the way they live, the You'll, you'll find the dishes at the restaurants that we prefer. You, Norway is uh, it's real. And, uh, and on the other hand, it's for explorers. If you like to, to explore things, if you like to go to the smaller places, the, the, the outside the beaten track, Norway has a lot of places outside the beaten track. Beautiful. I can't wait to go back myself. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's my pleasure. All right, that's all for today. So what were your thoughts on this episode? I'd love to hear them. Feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or Instagram or email me at nordicfoodtechpodcast at gmail.com. If you really liked it, consider becoming a patron and supporting the show for a few dollars every month. The link to do so is in the show notes or visit www.nordicfoodtech.io. Your contribution will make all the difference and enable me to tell more good stories about how we're creating a better future through food. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.